We are ending this morning our, our, our series, A Future and a Hope. If we, as we've spent these three weeks looking at this subject of trials and how God would have us to navigate them, the things that he would teach us about them, what his word says. Uh, we, in our first message, we talked about the perspective that God would have us to, to hold on to as we make our way through the valleys of life. And really, we established a theology for suffering. Then we talked about persevering, the importance of pressing on and not giving up. But today we're going to talk about preparation, the preparation God gives us for today, but also for tomorrow to endure not only the trials that we are in, but the ones that are coming. One of my favorite pastors, he shares and writes about a story regarding the importance of preparation. He was alive during uh, the beginning of World War II, and he writes, when I was a little boy, I knew nothing about the politics of war. I didn't understand why wars started or how they ended. The big question in my formative years during World War II was, how come the attack on Pearl Harbor happened? That, that lazy, hazy, laid-back Hawaiian Sunday morning, the 7th of December, sometime before dawn. How, how could that happen? I didn't understand. But he writes, as I read the records now, I hear admissions like, we weren't ready. We never expected it. It was a genius plan. George Washington wrote decades ago, to be prepared for war is one of the effectual means of preserving peace. Walk softly and carry a big stick was uh, something that Theodore Roosevelt operated from that, that perspective. And we understand from a military point of view that, that victory over an enemy is made possible through vigilance, expecting the battle. It's a little bit what we're talking about this morning, the importance of you and I expecting and anticipating and recognizing that there will be battles. There are battles. As we wrap up this three-part series, we're, we're going to conclude today by, by considering what God's Word has to say as to the preparation, this preparation that he has for us, as well as the means by which he equips us, how, how we are given and gifted tools, the truth and tools that he's already provided, that we might make our way through the valleys, walking in victory and enjoying blessing rather than defeat. So let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start looking at the word this morning. Father, as we open your word, God, as we, as we study it and seek to understand your ways, Lord, and, and the promises, God, the, the, the gifts that you've given us, we pray that, Lord, you would make us teachable. We pray, Father, that you would open our understanding, our, our ears and our hearts, Lord, that, Father, you'd keep us from giving up, and in fact, you would encourage us, Lord, to trust you, to walk more near to you, Father, to live in more complete surrender as we trust in your word and ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point this morning, if you happen to be following along in the outline, you can always grab those on the table on your way in or at the connection table. Understanding the enemy and, and excuse me, understanding the unseen, that is the spiritual world in battle that we're surrounded by, an enemy and our victor. Sun Tzu from The Art of War writes, know thyself, know thy enemy. 
Spiritual warfare and the reality of the enemy of our soul, the devil and his demonic minions, it's a reality, uh, it's a subject really that, that is entire, entirely unto itself. We could do a whole series just on spiritual warfare, but it, it bleeds into this subject and so we're going to talk about it a little bit. When we look at trials in the Christian life, we have to understand that the source of the pain that we encounter and endure, it comes from several places. We're talking about spiritual warfare, but that's not where all of our battles come from, is it? I mean... First of all, we recognize that we simply live in a fallen world. When I talk to people, counsel believers about suffering, sometimes it's important, and, and I make a point of establishing that. Genesis 3.17 tells us right after the fall, we read there that God said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall leave it all the days of your life. We are living in a broken and fallen world. The system itself is broken. The environment, the world, everything about it. And as such, we suffer problems and pain that streams from that, from the result of sin and death being a part of this world. Even, even completely separated from the reality of an enemy, or our personal sin. <laughs> Years back, a local author, some of you will know who I'm talking about, but he wrote a book, Why Do Bad Things... No, 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 why do... Uh, why do um, yeah, 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 why do bad things happen to good people? The problem was he was asking the wrong question. Really, it's why do good things happen to bad people, because that's who we all are, right? Well, beyond problems happening in our lives and troubles resulting simply from living in a fallen world, we also do go through trials that are of our own making, don't we? A result of our own sin and choices sometimes. But then there is this third category, trials that come as a result of our enemy. And to understand this a little bit better, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and read just a little bit from the book of Job. Some of you have read and studied that book. It actually, in terms of writings of antiquity, predates Genesis not in terms of chronology, it didn't happen before Genesis, but it was written and recorded before. But there we find Job, who chapter 1, verse 1 of that book reads, was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. He was a good man, served and honored the Lord. But, but then in verse 6, the veil is drawn back to help us understand what Job endures in his life, which... which essentially is everything falling apart. In verse 6, we read of chapter 1 of Job, Now there was a day when the sons of God, which is a reference to angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. That's odd. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Well, that's not so odd because 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that, that our adversary, Satan, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is exactly what he is about, moving to and fro throughout the earth looking for targets. Well, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to his face. Job was, uh, or Satan rather, was uh, suggesting that Job's character and commitment to God was only a result of God's blessing on his life. And while Job was not a perfect man, God knew better. And so the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, later when this same scene is repeated after the enemy is given permission to bring great suffering into Job's life, then he is even given allowance to harm Job's personal health. So for the greater part of this book, we find Job having lost just about everything, battling terrible health problems and having to endure advice, so-called, at the hands of his friends who insist that this has all happened because there's some secret sin in his life. Needless to say, this scenario, it teaches us a few things when we look at Job's life, which if you've not studied it, I encourage you to do that sometime. One is that while Satan does have freedom, he is roaming and he's able to create havoc and cause damage. He's also on a leash. He has to answer to God. He has to give an accounting. It's interesting because we find similar, at least one similar account in the New Testament. Do you remember it in Luke chapter 22? Jesus was talking to Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, or Peter, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, I'll admit, we're only scratching the surface when it comes to everything that Job endured and lived through, um, and this, this subject of the enemy and his role in our trials. But suffice it to say, it's important to understand that at times, the valleys that you and I walk through are a direct result of spiritual warfare. And typically, the error that I see among believers and in the church is we, we, we fall to either one extreme or the other. Either we, we all but disbelieve Satan's activity and presence in and around our lives and, and sort of dismiss it out of hand, or we're, we're obsessed with it and everything. You know, it's like you ran out of gas on the freeway. Well, Satan drained my tank when I, when I wasn't watching. And I'm not saying, you know, he can't cause us harm, but sometimes it's like, okay, well, that was your own, you know, stupidity. But I, I'm, forgive me if you ran... Okay, I just realized my wife ran out of gas recently, and um, it was an accident. I didn't mean to infer anything by that. Probably it's, So let's pray um, for me. The passage tells us a, a couple of things, though. Once again, that um, Satan is only able to bring trials into our lives when he is given the express permission of God to do so. And secondly, when that does occur... The thing that you and I can know with absolute certainty is only those things that have passed through the Father's filter of love are able to touch our lives. At no time is God out of control. At no time does Satan have some upper hand. At no time is God wringing his hands going, oh no, it got out of control. Never. God is 
always in control. And, and for that, we would refer back to all the things that we talked about in our first message. Some trials, some trials are a result of spiritual warfare. And it's important to recognize that because the Bible says that we have been given tools, weapons to deal with it. And, and while sometimes it can be hard in the moment to know whether or not is this, is this the result of the enemy attacking me or is this just a situation where I'm living in a fallen world? How do I know which is which? Well, the good news is the, 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 the armor, the, the weapons we're given, they help in both cases. We read of it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. How many times is our trial, is our valley, is the difficulty that we're going through in our minds personified in a specific person? It's the boss. It's the this family member. It's the this whoever and we're so focused on them, we forget, wait a minute, the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That person needs to be the object of our prayers, and we need to be busy about putting on this armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. That's a lot of standing. That's, that's a lot of reminder that in the midst of the battle and spiritual warfare, ours is to, well, we talked about this last week, persevere. Ours is to maintain the ground that God has called us to, to know where God's called us to plant our feet and stay there, firmly founded on the promises of God's word. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, having the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. You know we could spend a whole Sunday morning and several um, unpacking Ephesians chapter 6, but uh, we have to prepare each day for the battle by suiting up. Do you pray through the armor of God at the beginning of each day? I think it's a good practice, at least a few times sort of like praying through the Lord's Prayer, those, those structures that are helpful for us in being intentional about our day, that we would walk into it serving the Lord and ready for the attack and the difficulties that are inevitable. Being in the Word. Remember, how did, how did Jesus resist Satan when he came and attacked him, when he tempted him? It is written. It is written. It is written. Being in prayer, we read in Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to pray without ceasing, to live in that place of devotion and constant communication with the Father, standing in the promises of God. Scripture tells us, Paul writes to the Corinthians, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. We're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How did Job do in the battle? 
In verse 20 of chapter 1, just at the beginning, before, before he once again had to endure the advice from all those guys for 35 some odd chapters, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall, shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Wow, that's a pretty high bar, isn't it? The good news is, is you keep reading Job, and, and he does struggle, all right? He's, he's not a, you know, perfected saint, all right? God has to do some humbling at the end, but then, of course, the Lord restores and heals and, and speaks to Job. But Job chose to trust God, and through it, he saw the faithfulness and the goodness of God. We learn from Job and from Peter, for that matter, as well, that, that we have a real enemy, but that ultimately it's God who's in control. Uh, Satan, he'd like us to believe that he has more power than he actually does. I like this reminder that we're given in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus speaks as John is recording, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus is in charge, not Satan. If Satan had the power of life and death, we would all be dead right now, right? Okay? He's not going to let God's people live if he has that power, but he does not have that power. Now, our second point this morning, having spoken to this idea that we have an enemy, but that we also have a victor, and we've been given tools and, and weapons for this warfare that we might walk in victory, is accepting God's grace, strength in weakness. In addition to realizing that we have this real and potent enemy, and that God works through that enemy's devices and schemes to actually mature and grow us, Romans 8, 28, he causes all things to work together for good, we find that our dependence on God, on his grace in those times, can be an avenue through which we experience his power. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul writes from his own personal experience. We, we know he had some sort of ongoing physical problem and pain. Here he writes and frames it, though, in, in a spiritual context. So it was likely both. Verse 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. See, Paul, Paul admits right here, he says, God, God has shown me so much, worked through me. I think he's allowed this to humble me. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The word in the Greek for thorn in the flesh, it's the same as like a tent peg. Imagine a, a tent peg stuck in your, just kind of a constant pain and irritation. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, many have pointed out that Paul, he's not specific. We can guess, and there's lots of speculation about what this thorn in the flesh is. But I like how in verse 10, he broadens it out even more because you might think, well, I don't have anything like that. Well, do you have any infirmities, any reproaches? Do you have any needs? 
any persecutions, anything that you're distressed about in your following of the Lord? Well, it falls into this category. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And I don't know about you, but when I'm weak, I feel weak. That's what I feel like. I'm just weak. I don't feel strong. And, and we don't on our own, do we? Three things in particular, that's three, that we're going to look at as we, as we quickly move through this passage. And the first is that we need to learn humility from trials. I already mentioned Paul saw that out of the gate. He said, I get it. The Lord wanted to keep me healthy by allowing me to be humbled lest I should be exalted above measure. When God allows trials, one of our responsibilities and callings is to learn, to humble ourselves and recognize that any pain is a reminder of our own limitations. Any pain is a reminder of our own limitations. At times, these come at opportune moments, teachable moments, we would say key places and times in our lives in which it's necessary and important that we learn to practice humility. God has a way of introducing these influences just when we need them, doesn't he? First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Peter exhorted his audience, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. It's important that we respond rightly to pain that God allows. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes, pain insists upon being attended to. It does, doesn't it? God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I would say it's also his megaphone, his tool to rouse a deaf child of God as well. Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Pain in our lives, among other things, it's an opportunity to slow down, to reflect on our own limitation, and to remember God's greatness, his power, and sufficiency. Secondly, that we would receive grace during trials. Grace during trials. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's a good place to remind ourselves of exactly what grace is. It's his goodness toward us, his supplying of our needs, his manifold blessings in our lives. There's that acronym that's really helpful to remember, God's riches at Christ's expense. I've always remembered the definition that we had in Bible college. God's, how, how does it go? I've always remembered it, but I can't right now unless I look at my notes. God's unmerited favor freely given to the infinitely ill-deserving favor that we don't deserve given to those of us who could never earn or deserve it, infinitely given. In our weakness, our need, our pain, and our insufficiency, God provides his grace. Finally, we need to understand that dependence is strength. 
verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. We fear weakness. We don't like it. And I, I totally include myself in that we. I don't like weakness. I don't like dependence. I don't like having to rely on others. I like to be able to do for myself. Probably one of the most difficult stages in life is when you can't care for yourself and you have to depend on someone else, especially if you're aware of that, how difficult that is. But for the Christ follower, willful weakness, choosing surrender over personal strength is allowing Christ's power to be made perfect in our lives. It's a choice to depend on God. It's an admission of need. When in our meekness we have to, excuse me, and when in our (coughs) weakness that's hopefully accompanied by meekness, when we in those moments turn to him, we're truly then at our strongest. When we're depending on his grace and not on our strength and abilities, we're, we're equipped to overcome anything and everything. Knowing and living this, it prepares us for the valleys that are coming because it's in those valley places where where we're called to invite the Lord into our pain, into our lack, into our insufficiency, to cry out to him and say, God, would would you do on my behalf? Would you take up for my cause? Would you be my strength? Would you be my power? There we grow. There we experience his power, his grace, and his strength. And there we're equipped and prepared for the next valley, for tomorrow's trial. All of that requires faith, which brings us to this morning's final point, trusting in pain, victory through the valley. As we finish up today's message in this whole series we've been looking at, we're going to end by considering the 23rd Psalm, probably one of the most notable chapters in the Bible when it comes to suffering and pain. And I think it's just about every memorial service or funeral graveside I've ever done, I share the 23rd Psalm. But we can misunderstand if we think that this is a psalm for, for death only because I believe it's truth very much for the living, for you and I. The 23rd Psalm, I, I believe, I think it's a road map, a guide through to, to living through difficulty and finding not only purpose and meaning in those times, but also power and most critically, the presence and guidance of our Savior. We touched on it a little bit last week, but, but the subject bears repeating. Would you read with me Psalm 23, beginning in verse 1? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Imagine yourself in your trial right now. Imagine yourself as a lamb of God under the shepherd's care walking with him through your experience. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, even a quick, a cursory reading of this psalm, uh, the average person can see that it's a record of victory and overcoming through the ups and downs of life. The sheep is brought through by the, the faithful and loving hand of the shepherd. And the sheep's only job, it would seem, is to trust and follow that shepherd. It's a picture of total dependence. I think it's the best picture and illustration that we have in the whole of the Bible as to how to find hope in the valley. It's a picture uh, of experiencing God's presence in our trials. How you and I are to be prepared for the valley is to live like sheep, totally dependent. And that's not easy, is it? Because we like, we like to be prepared, but not necessarily in the sense of the way that, that we've talked about <laughs> or are talking about as the title of this message. We like to be prepared in the sense that all insurance is in place. Every contingency is covered. We've got it all under control so that if anything goes wrong, nothing really will go that wrong because it's taken care of. But this is talking about something different. And I'm not saying we shouldn't you know, live intelligently or have insurance policies or things like that. Don't misunderstand. But what are we putting our faith in? That's what we're talking about really, isn't it? Because you know the difference, don't you? You can have auto insurance, but then, but then you can have a cavalier attitude that's like, well, I don't need to worry about what happens. I don't need to pray for my, you know, whoever because, you know, it's all covered anyway. In, instead of, well, I want to be wise, but ultimately I'm putting my trust and faith in, in my, my, my loving God, the good shepherd. Verses four and five is where we'll focus. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David could declare this with absolute confidence and ahead of time because he was already living like a lamb under the care of the good shepherd. He was prepared. I think the older we get, the farther we get away from this whole idea of living with childlike faith. Remember those, those places in, in the Gospels where Jesus, he talked about the, the faith of, of, of a child, took them up in his arms, blessed them, um, of such is the kingdom of God, he said, of children. There's a, there's a dependence and there's a childlike faith that the Lord wants us to have, like when we were kids, where, where, where the assumption is just, it's going to be okay, I'm going to be taken care of. Knowing whatever your experience was as a child, that we serve a God for whom that is his intention to take care of and provide for us. John 10, 11 Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. When we purpose to live in this way, when we choose to live dependent on him, we ensure that our experience in the valley will be as David described, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's where the Lord wants to take us. I'm sorry to say, and I wish it wasn't so, but God is, he's, he's not looking to take us to a place where we're safe. 
just this, uh, we, we went and visited my oldest, it was family weekend, and so we drove out to Phoenix and saw her at her, at her school and um, tried to figure out things to do. We went to the zoo there in town, and uh, we saw the lion, and, and my wife was remembering C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, the first book, the beavers reflecting on Aslan, trying to explain him to, um, to Peter and the others, and, and saying that, that he wasn't safe, he's a lion, but he's good. And that's our God. There are no guarantees of a, of a safe and constant, continual, prosperous Christian life where no problems ever happen. On the contrary, they're going to happen. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to recognize that you and I are just passing through? This is not our home. That's still ahead of us. We have a purpose. We have a mission. It's, it's why we shouldn't be afraid to step out and take uh, measured steps of faith that the, the little life that we've been given would be invested for eternity. That's what I want. I hope it's what you want too. I want my life to count. Not so that when I'm dead and gone, people would come and look at my gravestone and go, oh, he was a great guy, I remember. Talked about the valley, you know, now he's in it. Ha ha. No, I mean, <laughs> but, but that we would, we would want it to count for eternity, for the kingdom, to be invested in others, to be invested in, in, in the gospel. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I don't have to be afraid because I fear God, and he is in control of my lives and his life, and he's good. Secondly, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. I've reflected on this several times, and I think it's, I think it's amazing because when you read Psalm 23, the impression is almost, well, we've come out of the valley now. It's good stuff, Right? And, and, and what I think's funny is that here we've come out of the valley, the difficult times, and God leads us and sets up a picnic lunch, but there on the other hill is our enemy staring at us. You ever feel that way sometimes where it's like, man, I've just been beat up and attacked, and then the Lord's like, okay, I want you to rest, but you're like, but the wolf is right over there. But the shepherd is there, and he's still holding his rod and his staff, and he's in control, and we don't have to fear any evil. Because as we said earlier in reflecting on Job in First Peter and Luke 22, he is on a leash. And he can only go so far as the shepherd permits him. And the shepherd is not going to allow him to do anything once again, but that which passes through his filter of love and is a part of his purpose for your life. This passage it reminds me of Daniel chapter 6, the prophet's encounter in the lion's den. Remember, Daniel, he's really, he's, he's much older now, but, but it was in chapter 1 that he'd purposed in his heart, right, to serve the Lord, and that, that never changed. And here at the end, a couple kings later, the king has passed a, a foolish edict that no one can pray to him for a certain number of days, and Daniel, of course, persisted in, in looking toward Jerusalem and praying to his God. And he was arrested for that, and the punishment was that he would be thrown into the lion's den, a, a cave that was, the mouth would be covered with a rock, and, and there below were many lions that had been uh, kept hungry for the purpose of devouring those that were to be punished and thrown into their midst. Well, the king, knowing that his edict was foolish and actually really liking and loving Daniel, reluctantly cast him into the den as punishment for this ill-conceived law and, and, and 
worried about him through the night, Daniel chapter 6 tells us, and came early the next day. And we read in Daniel 6 verse 20, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? You think of you, whatever circumstance you're at in life and how you wish the Lord would just deal with your enemy. And God's telling you, sit down and eat and trust me. Rest. And it's, you're like, well, I can see the enemy, though. He's right there. I'll eat after you deal with him. And the Lord says, no, you, you, you eat now. You step out in faith. And, and let's talk about how you really do trust me, whether you can see the enemy or not, because I'm the one who's more powerful than the enemy, and I will ultimately defeat him one day anyway. So how about you just trust me? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you, by the way. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he believed in his God. God wants to equip and prepare you and I for the valleys, and he does so by calling us to live as sheep, to trust and rely on him, our good shepherd, and by allowing those places of weakness and struggle in our lives to become channels by which we can experience his power and by recognizing that although we have an enemy, we also have a savior and victor who has already run the battle on our behalf. I want to close with some thoughts from Philip, Carroll, uh, Philip Keller, excuse me. His book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Many of you have read this. It's been around for quite a few years. He writes from the unique perspective of one familiar with sheep and agriculture and reflecting on why exactly shepherds lead their flocks into and through valleys. He writes, not only is this the way of the gentlest grades, but it is also the well-watered route. Here one finds refreshing water all along the way. There are rivers, streams, springs, and quiet pools in the deepest defiles. During the summer months, long drives could be hot and tiresome. The flocks experience intense thirst. How glad they are for the frequent watering places along the valley route where they can be refreshed. I recall one year when an enormous flock of over 10,000 sheep was being taken through our country en route to their summer range. The owners came asking permission to water their sheep at the rivers uh, that flowed by our ranch. Their thirsty flocks literally ran to the water's edge to quench their burning thirst under the blazing summer soul sun. Only in our valley was there water, was there water for, where did page 13 go? <laughs> Only in our valley where the stream ran was there water to parch their flesh. How glad we were to share the water with them. As Christians, we will sooner or later discover that it is in the valleys of our lives that we find refreshment from God himself. And it is not until we have walked with him through some deep troubles that we discover he can lead us to find our refreshment in him 
right there in the midst of our difficulty. We are thrilled beyond words when there comes restoration to our souls and spirits from his own gracious spirit. If you, if you missed that or were distracted by my getting lost in my notes, it's only in the valleys that we experience his miraculous provision. It's only there where there are no other options where we can learn to depend on our good shepherd. And in your valley right now, that's what the Lord's looking to do, to draw you to himself, to trust him, that you would live as, as, a, as a child of God, as, as one of his sheep under his care, that you would enjoy that, that healing and filling joy and blessing that comes when we surrender, when we trust when we live as sheep under his care. And it's, it's there that we're prepared for the valley. It's, it's there that we find hope in the valley and his presence as well. Why don't you stand with me? We'll respond to the Lord as we conclude with a song of worship. Father, each of us, God, we're either coming out of a valley, Lord, we're in the midst of one or there's one ahead of us. We want a purpose to trust you in it. Father, we want to choose, and we pray that you give us the grace and the power to choose to trust you, to take that position, that posture of dependence. God, we want to choose to trust in you, to trust your promises, to believe. To rest, Lord knowing that you have our best in mind. Knowing that you're growing us into the men and women you've called us to be, that, that your goal is your power made perfect in our weakness. We want to choose to trust you now as we surrender and worship.